following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. So, uh, I was going to keep going in Hebrews 12 this week and move on to verse 3 and following, but I'm back to verses 1 and 2 because of something very specific. I don't know how many of you saw in the news this week that a local area pastor uh, was arrested for serious crimes, not just selling drugs, but then drugging people and assaulting them. This hit close to me because I know him. I worked with him for years. He was one of the pastors here in the area, and he was well-known in pastoral circles and lots of other places. And it's something where you read about stories like this in the news, and if they happen far away or you don't know the person, you kind of see it in, in maybe sort of a clinical sense. And you're like, okay, that's bad. But this week was hard. This week was really hard for me, and I know I wasn't the only one. There's other people in this congregation who were deeply impacted by this because this is someone that we knew or thought we knew, uh, and, and it turns out um, we didn't, and what we didn't know was of tremendous significance. And so I've been struggling this week in the company of friends and other pastors about what to do this, do with this. And on the one hand, I just, I want to rage at sin. And I think in some ways that mirrors how God feels about sin. I mean, there's a, a righteous anger when the world is broken and people are bro- broken because of sin. And I think not being angry would actually reveal something of a problem. If I'm not distraught by the impact of sin, there's something in me that is not yet fully appreciating what sin does. But at the same time, I'm a sinner. Does this make me a hypocrite? Uh, am I allowed to weigh in in judgment on certain actions? Or does this make me a person in a glass house who throws a stone? How do we condemn sin in a way that shows that we understand why God hates it so much? And yet at the same time not misrepresent a God who loved us so much that he sent himself for the form of Jesus to die for us sinners, the very ones who do those things he so hates. So how do you balance this, this justice and mercy of God? How do we balance the facts that God will forgive repentant sinners, but courts probably won't? And in both cases, that's what justice looks like in God's good world. Then there's the scandalous nature of the gospel and that God offers mercy and salvation to everybody from the nicest person you've ever met to the worst person you've ever met. We all drink the water of life from the same well of grace. So I've been wrestling with all of these conflicting emotions and I honestly, I want to run from this topic. I've had a hard time trusting my own thoughts and feelings about this this week. I had lunch with my wife uh, the other day and I was just I was venting about this, and I could tell from the expression on her face, like what I was saying was not a rational response. It was just an emotional response, like, just let me speak. I just feel this. I just feel it right now, and i got to get it out. Then you can kind of help me give some boundaries and some understanding to this. So part of why I don't want to say anything is because I don't trust myself. Part of what I'm concerned about is that I could misrepresent God in the process of talking about this. Right now, God's justice looks really compelling to me. But I know that God's justice does not look as compelling when I look at my own life and the things in my own life that God ought to bring justice to. So I know that God's mercy is compelling. So I I don't want to misrepresent God just because in the moment... There's one aspect of the nature of God that stands out to me. But based on comments I've seen, I've seen everything from Christians who are struggling with a cynicism and maybe even a fear about the leadership in their church. Because a story like this goes out and suddenly it's like, oh, oh, you're a pastor? I just heard this about this pastor. And and now, like it or not, I suspect there's seeds of doubts in people as they wonder about the integrity of their leadership. Uh, I've heard comments from young people in whom this pastor, who was also a teacher, was very instrumental in their lives. This, this raises questions. You were the guy 
who talked about God and in some ways represented God and Christianity to me. And now it sure looks like this was just a hypocritical front. And now it's actually raising questions to them about their faith. Is this a legit thing? Like I thought God changed people. If all of this is true, um, boy, it sure seems like something's not connecting here. And then maybe you've read comments online as new stories have been posted, especially on Facebook, the comments that unfold. For a lot of people outside the church, this seems just like another nail in our church coffin. Like, I knew this was what Christians were like. Typical pastor. There's story after story. And so as much as I really don't want to walk into this today, I think we have to walk into it. And so we're going to... and. From here on out, I'm not going to talk about this fallen pastor. I want to talk about what God has put in our life to help us run the race well. Yeah, so walk with me here this morning. We have message plus afterwards that we can continue to talk about this because I'm sure there will be more to talk about. Um, but, but this is the best I have to offer today. So first of all, Paul said, the Apostle Paul, that he disciplined himself so he wouldn't be knocked out of the race. This was 1 Corinthians nine twenty-seven. It's an Olympic term. We kind of talked about this last week. This is looking at our lives and setting aside the weights and the sins that would slow us down or disqualify us. And Paul says he brings his body into subjection. And he didn't mean like physically whipping himself. This is a moral conversation that Paul looked at his life and he said, uh, I have the Holy Spirit. One of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is self-discipline. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because of Christ in us and the Holy Spirit in us, we have the God-empowered ability to discipline ourselves in ways we did not without Christ. And Paul says, this is what I do. I don't want to be knocked out of the race. And I think the idea of this is that he could undermine his mission, his momentum, and his message if he wasn't careful. And Paul, of all people, knew this was not how you earned your salvation. Paul's testimony is one of just God miraculously giving his grace to Paul, revealing himself and transforming him. Paul was not earning God's approval or earning his salvation in any sense when he talked about this. He was just saying, listen. God saved me from the kingdom of darkness and brought me into a world of light. What is my just response to him? What is my act of worship? My act of worship is to give him my life. My act of worship is now to invest the sweat equity that I have into this race that I'm running. And Paul says, I do that. He says, I die daily. Jesus said, you count the cost. He warned his followers that you'll take up a cross if you follow him. Paul certainly knew what that meant, that the Christian life was going to be hard. The image of a cross is the worst image you can imagine at that time. And you add to that, Paul says, you know what? Not only do I carry that with me, but every day I have to crawl up onto an altar and lay down my life in the service of Christ. Sacrifice is ugly and it's hard and it's painful. But then we read in Hebrews last week about the joy Jesus had set before him. And that joy was fulfilling God's purpose for him. And we have that same joy set before us, and Paul knew this too, that he was called to something purposeful in Christ. He was given this race to run, and the race is glorious, and it's beautiful, and it's good. So none of this mattered to Paul. He said, I'll pay that price Because what God gives me the opportunity to do is amazing. And nothing will hold me back from doing this. We read last week in Hebrews 12, 1, Since we stand surrounded by the enormous cloud of all those who have gone before, let us drop every extra weight, every sin that clings to us and slackens our pace, and let us run with endurance the long race set before us. So I'm going to do a, a part two to that this morning, running the race. I have five points and then two more. Well, let's see how this goes. First point, if you aren't a Christian, if you're not a runner in this race, please don't pretend that you are. The Bible warns us, do not take the name of God in vain. 
Now, that is certainly including don't lightly speak out God's name, but it's much more deep than that. The word vain means empty or nothing or worthless or to no good purpose. So we are not to take or to bear the name or the reputation of God in a way that's wicked, worthless, or for the wrong purposes. So don't take the name of God in vain. Don't claim his mantle. Don't write Team Jesus on your sweatshirt and start running a race if you're not Team Jesus. Do not take God's name in vain. You don't align yourself with this king and this kingdom unless, like Jesus said, you plan to put your hand to the plow and not look back. So listen, the choice is yours. You don't have to make a commitment to follow Jesus. And in fact, you don't have to make a commitment to follow Jesus to be welcome in this church and to be welcome in my life. You bear the image of God. You have value and you have worth and you have dignity. Even if you're not interested at this point in your life in surrendering to Jesus, you're welcome here. I want you here. I, I, I like my friendships. And frankly, I want you close to us because I'm convinced that in the community of God's people and and in the work of God in your life, I mean, listen, I want you to be running that race with us. Make no mistakes about it. I'm going to be pressing into you because I want you to be a follower of Jesus. But, But if you're not there yet and you're in this church, just tell us. Just be honest with us. Nobody here is going to push you away. Uh, let me add to that. Nobody here better push you away. Are you with me on this? All right. If you're attending this church and you're not a follower of Jesus, that's okay. Just be honest about it. Just tell us. We're not going to look down on you or disdain you or hold you at arm's length because you haven't reached that point in your life. Listen, that's the Holy Spirit's work in your life. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I like you. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus for me to like you and to be your friend, but be honest with me. Don't pretend to be something that you're not. God already knows, right? God already knows. Let God's people know. It's okay. Second point. Don't enter the race if you aren't willing to run. So Jesus warned his disciples to count the cost, and the cost is everything. We have to know if we surrender our lives to Christ and we sign up for this race, there is no part of your life that you are meant to keep to yourself. God will take everything, your money, your loves, your priorities, your sexuality, your speech, your dreams, your relationships, your things, your time, your energy, your entertainment, your friends, your work, your hobbies, and everything else I left off of that, you surrender everything or just surrender nothing. This is the call. If you're gonna race, you run it to win it. There was a rich young ruler that came to Jesus and said, what must I do to follow you? And Jesus says to him, oh, dude, you're actually doing a pretty amazing job of following the law. It's pretty impressive. But he says, oh, hey, rich, young, law-abiding ruler who still loves money, I need your money. Give me everything or offer me nothing. I'm a jealous God. I will not share you with other gods. It's everything. There is no corner of your heart or your mind that belongs to you if you are a follower of Jesus. There is no corner of your checkbook. There is no corner of your house. There is no hidden search screen on your computer. There is nothing that God does not demand from us. It is everything Now, this isn't a demand to be perfect. I'm not asking you to be perfect. The Bible is not expecting you to be perfect. On this side of heaven, look no further than the disciples. Just, if you need, like, whoo, it's a high bar. You're right, it's a high bar. But just read the Gospels and read about the disciples. They're a mess. I mean, it's embarrassing what the scriptural writers record about the disciples. 
It would be if they recorded our lives, right? We're imperfect people and we're in good company, but we're imperfect people who have fixed our eyes on the finish line. We know who the author and finisher is of our faith, and we just won't stop hanging out with Jesus. We just won't stop following. It's ugly. We are ugly people. Amen? We are ugly people, but we're ugly people with our eyes set on Jesus, and we don't take our eyes off. And we grow, and we change, and we're slowly transformed into this holy reflection, and there's repentance, and there's restoration, and we're constantly moving deeper into the kingdom, and we're constantly beginning to more and more reflect the image of Christ in us. He who begins a good work in us will be faithful to continue it and then complete it. It's just part of the good news of the gospel. So this isn't about perfection, what I'm saying. I'm I'm just saying, listen, if you're going to run the race, run the race. It's going to cost you everything. You have to know this. You have to be prepared for this. This is the cost. Third point. We're goofy-looking runners carrying crosses and climbing up on altars every day. Listen, there's nothing cool about being a Christian. And we live in a culture that wants to be cool, perhaps above everything else. You cannot be a Christian and be cool. Part of it's going to be because you're going to be covered with scars. And you got to take that makeup off and let people see it. you got to be willing to be grubby and to be dirty and let other people know it because it's God often through his people who helps this process of cleaning us up. There's nothing cool about being a Christian. We reveal ourselves, warts and all, because it's in the congregation of the people of God that we find this support and the stability. We're going to get to this in a little bit, the importance of community. But also, that's how you tell your testimony. Nobody's impressed if someone clean gets a little bit cleaner. However, if someone who is a grease fire is suddenly not a grease fire and is, in fact, becoming beautiful, that's eye-catching. That's compelling But doing that won't make you cool. It'll make you vulnerable. Might make you embarrassed at times. You might set yourself up for people to judge you. All right. We're not called to be cool. We're goofy looking runners. And then people see us recover. They watch us heal from even the most mortal wounds. They watch our running technique improve and our times climb. They watch our teammates refuse to leave us. And every time something sets us back, it might be embarrassing, but we endure and we mature and we grow. That's just the way the race works. Fourth point, we must be slow to determine what successful movement looks like for those who are with us in this race. Some of us are sprinting. Some of us are running. Some of us are jogging. Some of us are walking. Some of us are crawling. Some of us are just sitting on the track, and it's all we can do to fix our eyes on the author and finisher of our faith. It is not our position to judge how those around us are running. That's between them and God. If you're sprinting, awesome. I am glad you're at a place in your life where you have found this healing and this hope and and everything's clicking for you, amazing. Sprint for all you're worth. But we don't dare look at the person who's just sitting there and all they can do is turn their eyes on Jesus. We don't know their story. We don't know what work God has already done in their life to just get them to turn and look in the right direction. So what we do as runners in a race is we run together, right? We look at the people around us and we do everything we can to help. And what you see in the process of the Christian life is that 
Crawlers can become walkers. Walkers can become runners. Runners can become joggers, right? We see this, this movement as part of God's faithfulness in us. And then as we do this, hopefully it builds in us compassion and we might be at the point where we feel like we're sprinting right now and we never look back at other people and go, how dare you not keep up with me? We go, I know what it's like to be there. I know what it was like when God was faithful in me. Be of good cheer. You will walk someday. We're growing. We're growing in truth and honesty and transparency and repentance and forgiveness and purity and holiness and accountability and restoration and self-discipline and love. Right? We're all growing. We're all starting somewhere when Jesus gets a hold of us and moving on from there. We are trying to understand what it looks like to treat everyone around us with honor, worth, and dignity. We are trying to do justice and love mercy. We are trying to offer clean hands and pure hearts. We're surrendering ourselves to the discipline of running in a pack under the direction of Jesus with the accountability, rebuke, encouragement, celebration, and strengthening that comes with that. We are lying exhausted in his arms as he carries us at times. We're learning how to walk again and to let him pick us up and dust us off and then run again. And we do this over and over. Committed, surrendered endurance is the marker of whether or not we're serious about our faith. Not perfect endurance, but an endurance in which we don't give up moving toward God as we grow into the image of Jesus, even if it's painfully slow. So I said earlier, if you're not in the race, if you're not following Jesus, just be honest with us. I want you here with us. Just be honest with us. If you're struggling to run the race right now... Be honest with us. This is the second be honest. Don't hide. Don't pretend to be sprinting if you're crawling. Don't pretend like everything's healthy and good if it's not. This is not a place for false fronts. If there should be any place in the world that is the safest place for us to be fully known and fully loved, it's got to be the church. We've got to get this right. This is meant to be the oasis in a hurting, hiding culture. It starts with us, with our honesty and transparency. Don't pretend to be something you're not. Please, please. This is the way it works. If if you promise to do that, the rest of us will promise to get to know you and continue to love you. I know I'm speaking for all of us, but I'm speaking in hope here. I don't know any other way to do this, this project of discipleship and this project of life. There's no shame in honesty. Let us bear each other's burdens. We're here for that. Fifth point, before I move into my final two points. The reality is that the American church in general is struggling right now to do this well. Um, I was reading up on this last week. The number one country to which missionaries are sent is the United States. Now, we are the number one missionary sending country mostly because we're huge. But everywhere else in the world... When people send missionaries, the number one nation they send missionaries to is the United States of America. Here's a quote from uh, one site I was reading uh, called Missionaries in America. Missionaries in America view the United States as a Christian nation in trouble. America has lost its spiritual fire with growing materialism, secularism, humanism, and sexual immorality. It's no longer a city on a hill or a beacon of light. It may even become like the now secular and dark continent of Europe. Although the United States is a predominantly Christian and dominant missionary-sending nation, I should add, by predominantly Christian, that simply means people who claim they are Christian. It's framed as a nation that has lost its foothold as a leading Christian influence. Its churches are great in number, but weak in spirit. Missionaries are therefore needed to bring spiritual revival in the United States of America. 
We have to understand the seriousness of what's happening at the Christian church in America. The rest of the globe sees us as in trouble. I'm hesitant to introduce myself as a pastor when I meet people. This was not the case when I first started pastoring here. Even 15 years ago, if I met someone and I said, I'm a pastor, they would go, oh, their eyes might light up a little bit. There was at least a little bit of a sense of respect. They might say, oh, I apologize for that language I just used. There was, But there was a legitimacy to it that carried some weight. Can I just tell you honestly, that does not happen anymore. If I introduce myself to someone as a pastor, if they're in the church, it's generally a collective shrug. If they're outside the church, generally what I see is a guardedness in their eyes. So I don't introduce myself as a pastor usually, especially to people outside the church. If they say, what do you do? I'll lead with, um, I teach an ethics course at the local college. Ah, and I'm a pastor. Now at least I've balanced it. I started out with something good in their mind. That, that is the reputation of the church. And that is the reputation of leadership in the church. They don't think, here's a man who might help me. When they hear me say, hi, I'm a pastor, they hear, hi, I'm a hypocrite, I'm a charlatan, I want your pocketbook, and I might want your kids. That's where we're at right now, culturally speaking. And that's because there's been a lot of wolves in the flock, and most of them have worn that sheepskin costume convincingly. And I don't think there's any amount of words that will change this reputation. We could talk about this all day long, but it's just words. Lots of people have talked, and it didn't matter because then we saw their lives. So what is the solution? The solution is a grassroots one. And what I mean by that is it starts with one person and then ten and then a hundred, then a thousand, then a million of individual Christians who say, listen, if I'm going to take the name of Christ, I will not take his name in vain. I will commit myself to the running of this race, to the shedding of weights and sins. If I'm going to run, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give everything I have to it. I'll give everything. I think that's the only way this changes. Number one, I love the picture of a church when everybody's in it together at this level. Man, that, that is just a safe harbor that I want to be a part of. Unless you misunderstand, I like this church. I feel like our church has been moving in this direction for years. And I, I was telling somebody this morning, I, I am nervous about giving this message because I don't know how everyone's going to experience. And their response to me was, but you're giving it to safe people. And I thought, that's true. I am. If I say something this morning that doesn't sit well with you or bothers you, you'll come to me. You'll tell me. You'll come to Message Plus. You'll bring it up. I I am safe here. I love this. But I, I'm just saying, the more we move into this and the more we all catch this vision, oh, church is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a foretaste of glory divine. So I love it for us, but I also love it as the salt and the light in culture, this compelling community of people. How do you do this? Oh, power of Christ in me, Holy Spirit in me, God's word leading me. You would not believe what that does to a person who surrenders themselves to this. And this happens in two ways. This brings me to my final two points. And even though this is my final two points, don't read that as this will be over quickly. So two things. What the church is often called orthodoxy and orthopraxy, which simply means true belief and right actions. So orthodoxy is true belief. This is what we believe about God, about sin, salvation, the world, humanity, you name it. This is important because what we believe to be true about the world will steer the course of our lives. So, God has given us the person of Jesus in history. 
as a revelation. God has given us his word as a revelation. The Holy Spirit works in us to give us wisdom as we study Jesus and as we study his word. There's also God's people. There's these things in place that have given us truth and then help us to rightly discern truth. And this has to be more than head knowledge for us runners. Uh, You can believe all the right things and not have it make a bit of difference in your life. The devils believe, just makes them tremble, doesn't make them obey, doesn't make them actually follow Jesus. This truth is given to us not so that we can compile truth and have this library in our head of just what we know. What the Holy Spirit brings is wisdom, and that is truth rightly applied. And that happens once again through the reading of the Bible, through the wisdom of God's people who also have the Holy Spirit, and I think through the company of 2,000 years of rich church tradition, the multitude of counselors, there is much wisdom. So I have this huge list. I'm not going to go through this list as part of my sermon. But in your notes, and this is not just things I like. I sent out a message to people this week and I said, hey, what are the things that form you as a Christian that bring this kind of Godly wisdom and discipleship to your life. So here's the list. I have some recommended Bibles. I have all kinds of things to help you understand the Bible. I have all kinds of books that have to worldview and living. This is just a partial list. But I, I must encourage you this morning. What's the strongest word for encourage that's short of demand? I will encourage you. I think, actually, that the Bible requires this of you that you study to show yourself a worker approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, do we all have to study the same? No. We all have particular things that speak to us more clearly. Some of you like theological textbooks this thick that will stop a door. Some of you like podcasts. Some of you need rich music to soak into your head. Some of you like sermons. Now listen, I think all of these are good ideas, and I think it's good to get out of our comfort zone a bit and try to absorb the truth that God has given us in ways that might not come naturally to us. But at least find something in your wheelhouse that speaks to you and absorb it. My sermons are not enough. Our classes are not enough. Our small groups are not enough. We... We give you what we can with the time that we have in the week, but you must be runners who seek to fuel yourselves. All right, so that's orthodoxy, but I I really want to land on the orthopraxy, the right living, just the practical side of things. What has God given us to help him, to help us follow him with integrity? So, okay, it's clear, the person and the work of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Bible. We talk about these a lot, as we should. In this last week, as other pastors and I and other church leaders have been talking about what happened, the the question that kept coming up is, how could this be? How could this be? How could one of us be at a place with these kind of accusations? And we didn't know it. What? How does this... So we've been talking a lot about what does it look like practically to put things in our life that God has given us to guide us, to keep us strong, to direct us, to challenge us, etc. So I just want to talk about two things. See, I keep expanding my list, and that is community and habits. But first, community. I believe that one of the key roles of the church, other than being salt and light into the world, this church body is here for the purpose of helping us to rightly order our lives. And I think it happens in this way. First of all, honesty with ourselves and transparencies with others. One of the key things we have to do is walk into our lives. What I mean by that is introspection, not avoiding the dark parts of our hearts and minds. If we find that we are just irrationally angry or lustful or greedy, we don't just go, well, uh, why don't I um, watch Netflix and forget about it? Nope, we walk into it. 
Now, this probably means getting God's people to walk into it with you because sometimes those skeletons in their closets are bracing themselves and we have a hard time pulling them out. And God puts his people around us so they go into our closets with us and bring those skeletons out. I was talking with friends this past week about the whole question of privacy and Christians because in America, we value privacy. And friends, I just don't think privacy is a biblical principle. It's an American one. Find me a verse in the Bible that says you have a right to privacy, not in the kingdom of God. And I don't mean with everybody. Not everybody needs to know your business. But somebody does, somebody does, somebody in the kingdom of God needs to know you. We keep our inside from going dark by constantly letting the light shine in. Scott posted this last week. Um, Men, if your wives don't have full access to your phone, I have a lot of questions. I thought that was a brilliant comment. I think I reposted it. Yeah, if you're married and your spouse doesn't have full access to your life, I have questions. Why not? Seriously, why not? Are you hiding something? You don't have that luxury in the kingdom of God. Maybe you're not married. What do you hide from your friends? If someone says, hey, can I use your computer to look something up? Do you immediately get high anxiety? That is a bad sign. Whenever in the kingdom of God, we have a desire to hide from at least one person. Once again, I don't mean hide things from everybody. Not everybody needs to be in our business. Okay, I said that once. I'm not going to say it again. When there is something you desire to hide, you do not have that luxury in the kingdom of God. God knows you, for one, you're not hiding it from him. You're just hiding it from others. But if you sign up to be in the kingdom, you have signed up to surrender yourselves first to God and then to the accountability of someone else in God's kingdom. I don't know if I can quote an exact verse for that, but it's a biblical principle Confess to each other. Yeah, that's in there somewhere. Confess to one another. That's the idea. Sorry, it's not in my notes, so I've kind of riffing on some of this. Can I say that any more strongly? Privacy is not a right in the kingdom of God. Someone must know what is inside of you. So my wife has full access to my phone and my computer. She can pick up any time. She can ask me, who's this text from, from this number that doesn't have a name? And I better be able to give her an answer. She could see everything I've watched on Netflix. So she can go, are you sure that was the best movie to watch if she wants to? The minute I start thinking, I should remove this from my record, that's a flag for me. We all need people in our lives to play that role for us. Spouses, friends, whoever it might be, we need at least one person to play that role in our life. Number two, accountability for challenge and encouragement happens in community. I love how more and more the last year or two, what I've been hearing in Message Plus and in small group, someone will share something that they want to do, that they know they need to do before God, and the next week someone goes, hey, how's that going? We've had some awkward moments in Message Plus that were delightful. There is power in that. There is real power in that. We had a moment in a small group where someone came in and said, last time we met, I told you guys I needed to do this. I told you what you were struggling with. You said, what are you going to do about it? I said I would do this. I didn't do it, so I did it on the way to small group tonight. <laughs> That's church, friends. That's church. Here's what it looks like in our church, for me as a leader and for the other leaders in this church, I just want you to know this about our accountability. I'm one of four elders. There's an elder advisory board. They know me. They are not yes men in my life. I am not a yes man in theirs. 
We hold each other's feet to the fire. We have a lot of actually tense conversations as we challenge each other as iron sharpens iron. Uh, I confess things to them, not always to every single one of them, but there's at least one person in that group that I confess things in my life to because they need to know who Anthony is and what Anthony's challenges are, and they do the same for me. Our small group leaders meet regularly and press into each other's lives. All of us in leadership of this church have a mutual accountability and a mutual responsibility to each other. Now, I want to add something to this. You have a responsibility to us in leadership too. I I want to be very clear about this. If you see something in the lives of someone in this church in leadership that is a yellow flag or a red flag to you, like I'm not sure something, I don't mean you just disagree with us about something petty. I'm talking now about something that seems to have moral significance to you. You're like, I, I don't quite understand why they said that or did that or why they were there or something like that. I beseech you. You either confront that person and just ask with grace and humility, I'm not understanding something about I, something that I experienced. Help me out here. If that doesn't work, you get someone else and you take them with you to that. You Matthew 18 us. Please. I don't mean for you to be policemen of every area of our life. I'm just saying, as I interact with you, and I'm just going to use myself as an example. If I interact with, with you, and there's something about my interaction with you that doesn't sit well with you, like in a moral sense, like, oh, I have a real check in my spirit that Anthony might not be in a good place. Please come talk to me. I might have blind spots in my life. I might need someone like you to come to me and go, Anthony, I see something. Be nice. That's all I ask. Be nice. If I'm intimidating, find someone else and bring them with you to me. Am I real clear on this? I want my life to be an open book in this church. Not every one of you gets every part of my life, right? My business isn't everybody's business, but it's somebody's business. You need to know that for sure. All right, I'm moving on. I said that. Next, we have a responsibility for others. I'm going to call this the ripple effect as we think about community. There was a commercial on the radio a number of years ago. It was a commercial about why you shouldn't commit gun crimes. And the commercial featured a girl who said, when my brother committed a gun crime, he sentenced me to five years of walking to school alone. I thought that was brilliant. It wasn't just when my brother committed a gun crime, he went to jail, because that's just about him. She made clear, oh no, when he did that, it was also about me. So in in the kingdom of God... We are our brother's keepers. In different ways for sure, depending on how we know people and how we're connected with them. But if you would ask me, do I have responsibilities toward other people in this church? Absolutely I do. Maybe America doesn't say I do, but I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God says that I do. So, I guard my heart for the sake of my wife not just for my own sake. I have to guard my tongue for the sake of my children, not just for my own sake. I have to guard and curb my anger on Facebook, not just for my sake, but for your sake, because I'm your pastor, and it's a public representation, and there's a connection there. And that's true not just for me. That's true for all of you. That's true for all of us. We're connected. When we sign up, when we join the team, now... Our reputation is team reputation. What we do has an impact. So we're never thinking as followers of Christ, this is just about me and Jesus. It's never just about me and Jesus. It's always about us and Jesus. And then finally, for this list, for part one of the two parts at the end, the cloud of witnesses that Hebrews talks about, the cloud of witnesses, this is my question, who inspires you? This cloud of witness in Hebrews are Christians from the past who were meant to inspire us in our walk today about how God was faithful in their life to bring about faith, right? So my question is, who is the cloud of witnesses in your life? 
What's the voices in your head that you look up to, the people that you admire, the people that you wish you were, the formative voices that you let to form you? Everybody has a cloud of witnesses. Who is in your cloud of witnesses? Is it godly people with kingdom ideals? Or not? This is going to matter. In the same way we always tell each other, be careful with your peer group, be careful you're hanging out with, your friends will form you. Absolutely true. We've all got a peer group in our heads. These people that we look to as in some sense representing the good life or representing who we want to be, who is your cloud of witnesses? This matters because it forms your loves and your desires and your goals. And if that cloud of witness is not a kingdom cloud of witness, your loves and your desires or goals are not going to be kingdom goals. And then last but not least, our habits. Song of Solomon says, and this is flowery Song of Solomon language. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. All right, so this is a love poem, right? And the author is using a, an analogy from that time to describe their relationship. Their relationship is a vineyard that it is bloom. That is, it's young. It's going to produce fruit. Don't let even the littlest things in there to damage the coming crop. The little foxes do damage. The little habits, the little things, they will grow up. They will get big. They will destroy things in our life. We as Christians are not called to wait until issues are serious and big. We're called to see them when they're small and deal with them. It's an old story of a Cherokee grandfather who was teaching his grandson a lesson about the fight within us. And he said, there's a fight going on inside of me. And he said, everybody, between two wolves... One is good and one is evil. And his grandson, according to this story, says, which wolf will win? And he says, well, the one you feed. I think it's a biblical principle. What in our life is getting scraps of our life? What are we feeding so that something that is small that is becoming bigger? Will Durant once said, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence is not an act, it's a habit, which sounds a lot like Paul saying, I discipline my body. We are what we repeatedly do. Fruit of the Spirit, self-control. Fruit of the Spirit, self-discipline. I'm not talking about us on our own power, gritting our teeth and trying to be good. If you have given your life to Christ, he has given you the Holy Spirit so that you can exercise self-discipline in your life that you were not capable of before without Christ. Eugene Peterson, who's responsible for giving us the message has described the Christian walk as a long obedience in the same direction. There's also a long disobedience in the same direction. And one direction takes you to heaven, and one direction takes you to hell. Our habits matter. And brothers and sisters, if you're having a hard time getting a handle on your habits, this is where you bring in friends to go back to community and honesty and transparency and running the race. Don't hide from us. Be honest. If you need someone to help you run, get someone to help you run. That's what we're here for. God placed us here for that purpose. This is, I promise, my final paragraph. I put a little visual thing on the board. It's not perfect, perfect, but this is the idea. I think God has given us five things to ground us in this race. That is, the person and work of Jesus, the Holy Spirit in our life, the Bible with its guidance and its truth, God's people around us, and then finally, the Holy Spirit in us. This is kind of a subcategory. Paul says, I discipline myself. We have that ability to be self-disciplined. And that self-discipline could include the self-discipline of going to someone else and saying, I'm not doing a very good job being disciplined in this area of my life that I know is sinful, help me. Seeking help is also a discipline. I am glad that in two weeks we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. But my heart has been heavy this week. Um, I think that's probably clear. 
and I come back to at the end of the day, what is it that inspires and gives hope? And it is Jesus. Resurrection Sunday reminds us that in spite of the daunting nature of what we are called to and all the things that go with us, we serve a risen Savior who died and rose again so that we might live. And that in him we might have life and have it more abundantly. Oh, dear God, that's good news. Lord, Lord, uh, help us to be passionate about you and your kingdom. Help us to catch a vision of what it looks like when fully surrendered communities of people do the life together that you've called us to and equipped us to do. I beg of you that we be the salt and light that you have called us to be, that we be a safe harbor, that in this church we can be known and be loved, not just by you and by others, that we can do that in return for people, that what we offer here and and in churches all across America, but what we offer here is uh, just a beautiful, sweet, glorious glimpse of your kingdom on earth. Dear God, we can't do this on our own. Um, we throw ourselves on your mercy. But we do that knowing that you are faithful and true and good and strong. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.